Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. It's Wednesday. The pot of tea is on the go. The birthday balls have been eaten, lint balls that is, and we're going to take a deep dive into a decade that we bizarrely call the noughties and the football of its time. This is the Noughties Nostalgia Podcast and this is episode 28. And if you're listening to this, I'm speaking these words to you as a 27 year old and you're hearing these words and I'm 28. I've crossed a divide. But enough of that. Speaking of birthdays, it's also Salif Jow's birthday who was born 44 years ago. Table Never Lies goes to Italy and to Serie A at the 2002-03 season. But first, we've got to talk about Carlo Ancelotti and his Chelsea team. Jose Mourinho was gone, Avram Grant was gone, Luis Felipe Scolari just did not work and Gus Hiddink was merely an interim manager. We were two seasons in what was supposed to be the next assault on trophies for Roman Abramovich and his Chelsea team. However, they had lost a League Cup final in 2008 They'd lost a Champions League final three months later in Moscow and came second and third in the Premier League as Manchester United ran away with the league both times. They had won an FA Cup in 2009 under Hiddink, but that wasn't enough. But just as Chelsea needed a manager, Carlo Ancelotti was leaving his post as AC Milan manager after an incredible eight-year run. He'd won leagues, he'd won cups, but most importantly, he'd won the Champions League and he'd won it twice with Milan. There was only one place he'd be going that summer the summer of 2009. And for a a notoriously free-spending Chelsea team in a pre-football financial fair play world, they didn't do much in the transfer market. Signings included a number three goalkeeper in Ross Turnbull on a free from Middlesbrough. And the signings were either ones for the future in terms of Nemanja Matic, who would leave for Benfica before coming back and becoming a success, or ones that didn't work out in Yuri Zirkov, or both in the case of Daniel Sturridge, who was one for the future and he didn't work out and was quickly shipped off to Liverpool where he almost made a success of himself in that 2013-14 season. Chelsea started well enough though in the 2009-10 season, starting the Premier League off with six wins from six but suffering defeats at Wigan and Villa. 
By the winter, though, Ancelotti had established a 4-4-2 with Nicholas and Elkrew had been there just under a year at this stage and Didier Drogba, the Chelsea talisman. Chelsea were officially at the races. They put five past Blackburn, they put four past Bolton and they'd beaten the champions Manchester United 1-0 at Stamford Bridge and also put another four past Wolverhampton Wanderers. But the best win for me out of the lot was a 3-0 win at the Emirates with those Didier Drogba goals and he just loved beating Arsenal, didn't he? Um, Chelsea wobbled slightly over Christmas, losing at Manchester City and then drawing to teams like Everton, West Ham and Birmingham, but somehow retained first place. They would go on to hit the likes of Sunderland and Villa and Stoke for seven goals, but crucially dropped points, most notably a shocking 4-2 defeat against Manchester City, which suddenly had them third. This was the time you'll recall of the John Terry Wayne Bridge spat that was all over the uh, press heading into the game. But a couple of months on, April the 3rd, 2010, the table read 71 points for Chelsea, but it read 72 points for Manchester United. Man United were going neck and neck with them to win an unprecedented fourth Premier League title in a row. And for all of the free scoring of Chelsea, United only trailed them in terms of goal difference by two, 51 to 53. So Chelsea went to Old Trafford, a place where they'd not won in five years in the league. And the last time they won... They went to Old Trafford as champions, as recently crowned champions, Thiago scored a belter and Chelsea won 3-1 in what was a rubber match, a dead rubber. So the stage was set with five matches to play after this match. A loss would surely end Chelsea's hopes. A draw would keep things nice and interesting with difficult games for both to come. And a win for Chelsea would swing things back in their way. Joe Cole's cheeky back heel set the tone. The forgotten man who had spent almost nine months out of action thanks to a Surgically repaired knee, thanks for knee ligament damage. He's got a beautiful goal. Completely wrong-footed, Edwin van der Sar silenced Old Trafford. And then Didier Drogba doubled Chelsea's lead with a goal that could only be described as blatantly illegal with a mile offside. But it was a 2-1 win, but Manchester United's goal was also illegal. Let's be honest, let's not um, show any sour grapes from this Manchester United fan Federico Makeda handling the ball into the net. And obviously, Chelsea were the better team on the day. Chelsea reaffirmed their title push with a win the following week whilst Manchester United slipped up at Ewood Park 0-0 as they often would back in those days. However, Chelsea still had to go to White Hart Lane and they still had to go to Anfield, with Manchester United facing similarly tricky ties at Etihad and at home to Tottenham. The Etihad clash for Manchester United that season was famous for Paul Scholes' late winner with a flick of the head and even more famous for Gary Neville giving him a big fat kiss on the lips. <laughs> and later that day, the title race was back on. The gap was back to one point, back to two points, sorry, as Jermaine Defoe and Gareth Bale struck in a 2-1 win against 10-man Chelsea. That same Spurs side laid down and rolled over for Man United in a, in a 3-1 defeat at Old Trafford the following week, whilst United forced Chelsea's hand with a 1-0 win at Sunderland, courtesy of Nani. Liverpool did a similar lying down process job to Spurs as they lost 2-0 at home to Chelsea. Steven Gerrard handing the ball to Didier Drogba on a plate there as Chelsea ran out 2-0 winners. Liverpool at that time had nothing to play for and they were sitting firmly in 7th or 8th place at the time. So, the defeat for Liverpool at Chelsea came in between 15 goals without reply for Chelsea against the likes of Stoke and Wigan and Chelsea won it. And that April clash with Manchester United on the third 
was the difference as Chelsea's 86 points beat United's 85 points. So I asked the question, and I asked the question to my Twitter followers, is Chelsea under Carlo Ancelotti underrated? So for the love of this podcast, replied to me saying, Carlo's Chelsea is certainly not underrated by all. They've got an honourable mention in our best of best club sides of the last 25 years. So check out that podcast on Apple and Spotify for the love of lists podcast on the best club sides of the last 25 years. I would have them in definitely in the conversation in terms of honourable mentions in terms of best Premier League teams. My rule of thumb is a good team wins the league once, which Ancelotti did here. A very good team wins the double, which Ancelotti also did here, beating Portsmouth in the FA Cup final. A great team either retains the title, a la Sir Alex Ferguson's Manchester United, Pep Guardiola's Barcelona, Mourinho's Chelsea, the only teams to do it in Premier League history. Or they can win the treble, so like Manchester United in 1999 and a very different treble, Manchester City with a domestic treble. A treble that was unprecedented, still unprecedented, but it almost wasn't courtesy of this season. So Chelsea, they came up against treble winning Jose Mourinho's Inter Milan in the last 16 of the Champions League, so they were out of that competition. But they did make the quarterfinal of the League Cup in 2010, going out to Blackburn on penalties. And if they would have got through that, they'd have had Villa in the semi-final, which was... Over two legs, especially very winnable. And then Manchester United in the final, which they'd proven that season, beating beating Manchester United home and away in the league that they could do at Wembley. And Chelsea loved to beat Man United at Wembley. We've seen it quite a number of times at the new stadium. So it all could have been very, very different. That summer, the summer of 2010, Ancelotti brought in David Luiz, Ramirez, Fernando Torres and Yossi Benayoun to varying degrees of success, we can all admit there. Ricardo Carvalho, Deco, Balak and Joko were all gone and it was definitely a gear shift from Ancelotti settling into his new job. Chelsea did lead the league table in the early days of the 2010-11 season until a run of one win from eight in the winter saw them out of the Champions League places. They'd scrambled to finish second but early eliminations from the domestic cup and getting beaten to a semi-final spot in the Champions League by the eventual Premier League winners in Manchester United and finishing second in the league, saw Carlo Ancelotti sacked harshly, in my opinion, because it came 12 months after a League and Cup double, let's be honest. So, I ask, where does Carlo Ancelotti rank among modern-day football managers? The left-sided problem on Twitter tweets me, with time, Carlo will definitely be more appreciated. Not many managers have won three Champions Leagues, and he built a wonderful team at AC Milan. Maybe he should have won more Serie A, And he has had more success in so many different places, but the lack of league success is down to a lack of intensity. He does build wonderful teams that shouldn't work with Milan's four playmakers and Real Madrid with a midfield three of Xabi Alonso, Angel Di Maria and Luka Modric. And left-sided problem gives us an example. Beating Pep's Bayern 4-0 away in the Champions League with the midfield that he already stated. I would say that that midfield works in terms of we have seen Pep Guardiola play with a six and two very, very attacking eights in Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva. And I mean, this this season it's more Gundogan. I mean, that can work. Angel Di Maria does play more and more in a central role at PSG if he can't get out wide into his much favoured role. Obviously, Modric can pretty much do anything. Obviously, Xabi Alonso playing more as a, a deep line playmaker, a deep six sort of thing. 
Maracas Flute says, Ancelotti is a manager where I'm always unsure what I'm supposed to think of him. He's obviously been at huge clubs and won a lot, but I seem to remember at Bayern the preparation was lackadaisical and players did what they wanted. And maybe he's just a hands-off coach. Harry Holland says, one of the best 2000s managers and I'd put him in top five or ten in the world with Milan and Chelsea. And my opinion is Ancelotti has to be ruled as one of the greatest managers simply ever. Um, one of the greatest managers in Italian history. Came to England, did well. Went to Germany, did well. Went to France, did well. And obviously went to Spain and did well. Winning his third Champions League in Real Madrid. Third Champions League, which he stands alone alongside Bob Paisley and Zinedine Zidane. And his Milan team, in terms of the 2000s, I'd say it was the best team, best club team, certainly. His tactics right now probably aren't in vogue. Uh, everyone's become accustomed to and become trendy to like the German school of pressing and a 4-3-3. Ancelotti would play a 4-3-3 as stated at Real Madrid. But we do remember his Real Madrid, his AC Milan teams a lot more where he'd line up in like a, a variant of a 4-4-2 or a 4-3-1-2 or a diamond, something like that. Shevchenko, Crespo or Inzaghi rotating the two positions up front. You'd have Kaká or Rui Costa slightly in behind him. Perlo at the base pulling the strings and then two absolute legends <laughs> shuttling in Clarence Sadoff and Gennaro Gattuso who've gone on to manage the club in lean periods, let's say. Um, we've seen it this weekend, this very weekend, what a 4-4-2 can do to a team as it turned a very tepid Liverpool-Man City game into an absolute thrashing for Man City as he put Phil Foden up top alongside, was it Bernardo Silva? And yeah, they just ran right, didn't they? Um, Ancelotti, he's won more than Jurgen Klopp. So if we stop football now, would we rank him above Klopp? Certainly in our our eyes tinted with recency, a lot of people would say, oh yeah, Jurgen Klopp's better than Carlo Ancelotti. But it wasn't too long ago that we were all calling Jurgen Klopp a bottler in cup finals until obviously he would win a Champions League. He would win. A Premier League. I wouldn't go to either extreme of calling him a bottler or calling him better than Carlo Ancelotti, but he's definitely in the conversation and should deserves to be ranked above Klopp because he's done it at several clubs, won Champions Leagues at several clubs, won leagues at several clubs. He can't be ranked above Pep Guardiola, really. I mean, maybe he would have been seen as a one-trick pony getting a very good academy team to win lots of things at Barcelona, but obviously Pep's then gone on to do very well at Bayern. He's still not replicated that Champions League. He would be definitely ahead of Ancelotti if he wins that third Champions League. But we all thought Pep would go into Man City, spend four years there and leave, but he's seemed to have had a second wind and obviously he seems to be getting a third Premier League medal, which is only alongside the likes of Arsene Wenger, Jose Mourinho and Alex Ferguson, managers who I'd all have in this conversation. The five of Mourinho, Pep, Klopp, Ferguson, Ancelotti and Wenger in what I'd call a modern day top six, so 21st century onwards. After this short break, we'll be discussing the birthday of one Salif Jao and the Senegal team of the 2002 World Cup. Egypt had a spot in the World Cup in 1934, but until 1970 there was no African presence at a World Cup. Tunisia won Africa's first ever match at a World Cup in 1978 
Algeria were cheated out of a second phase spot in 1982. Morocco were the first African nation to qualify from the groups in 1986 and Cameroon nearly reached the semi-finals in 1990. African hopes rested on Nigeria in successive knockout stages in America in 94 and in France in 98. And then it was the turn of Senegal, World Cup debutants in the Far East in Japan and South Korea. But let's backtrack a few months. AFCON 2002. Senegal had lost to Algeria in the semi-finals in 1990, but had gone one further in 2002, beating the Democratic Republic of Congo and Nigeria in the knockout phase. And the first final, well, it ended in heartbreak to the great sleeveless Cameroon side of 2002. A Cameroon side that would be joining them in the World Cup and a Cameroon side that wouldn't do as well as Senegal in that World Cup. But let's have a look at the team. So we had Salif Jao, who is, of course, as we said, 44 years of old, 44 years old today. He played in Monaco from 96 to 2000 and played in Ardennes at CS Sedan from 2000 to 2002. Papa Bouba Diop played for a string of Swiss clubs up until 2002, whilst El Hajjouf played for the likes of Socio, Rennes and Lons in Ligue 1. Likewise, Aliou Cissé playing his football with Lille, PSG. Lamina Diata also in Ligue 1 with Toulouse, Marseille, Rennes. With Henri Camera, Senegal's top goalscorer in history, playing at a string of Swiss clubs as well. They'd all be at bigger clubs or in the Premier League by the time the summer ended, pretty much. Salif Jao would end up at Liverpool joining El Hajjouf. Papa Bouba Diop would move to Lons and then to Fulham in 2004. Lamina Diata would play his football at Olympic Lyonnais in 2004, the great Olympic Lyonnais team that won seven league earns in a row. Aliou Cissé would provide a bedrock of the midfield for Birmingham in their first season in the Premier League, whilst Henri Camara would join Wolves, similarly promoted in 2003, to lead their line. So with all these names coming over to England or levelling up in terms of their clubs, it can be safe to say that Senegal had a great World Cup. So the marquee match that everybody remembered was opening night, or rather being in Britain opening lunchtime against the world champions France. It was the biggest mismatch in World Cup history they had as believe, but the ball spilled to Papa Bouba Diop and Senegal won 1-0. And our birthday boy today, Salif Jao, got the equaliser in the next match against Denmark. Denmark, who in France's absence would have certainly strolled to Group A top spot. Salif Jao would also get sent off in that match, meaning he'd miss the 3-3 humdinger as Senegal would somehow hold on to a 3-0 first half lead against Uruguay, just qualifying. Whilst two Henri Camara goals sunk Sweden in another big shock, Sweden one of the biggest European teams at that tournament. Senegal had matched Cameroon of 1990 and they'd bettered the African champions, Cameroon who'd gone out to the likes of Ireland and Germany in the group stages, whilst Senegal were looking at a potential World Cup semi-final first for an African nation. Salif Jao was back after suspension, and in terms of a tournament, there wasn't many better midfields than Senegal's. You had the captain, Aliou Cissé, deep, and you had Salif Jao in a more energetic, more advanced role than he usually does at his club, alongside Papa Bouba Diop in an energetic midfield three. It's no surprise that those three sort of garnered moves across to England that summer after their amazing performances. 
Well, they wouldn't be changing clubs as World Cup winners or even semi-finalists as an Ilhan Mansi's golden goal killed the game dead in the quarterfinals. Turkey won 1-0 and Senegal would have to wait 16 years for another World Cup, missing out on the knockout stages in Russia courtesy of yellow cards, whilst Turkey haven't ever returned to a World Cup. Salif Jau moved to Liverpool prior to the World Cup, but wasn't used in a similar vein as he was at national level. He was deployed out of position by then-manager Gerard Houllier and left out of the League Cup final against Manchester United in 2003, a final that they would win 2-0. That would be Jao's only chance at silverware whilst at Liverpool, as by the time Liverpool reached another final in 2005 in the Champions League, Jao was out on loan, and not only was he out on loan, he was immediately injured in his loan spell at Birmingham. By the time he came back under Rafa Benitez, he'd lost his place thanks to the arrivals of Jabi Alonso and Momo Sissoko. He would then go on to feature for Portsmouth again on loan, albeit sporadically, due to another injury. Redknapp didn't option his permanent move that summer in 2007, but Jao would be out of the door anyway after five years at Anfield, dropping into the EFL with Stoke City. Salif Jao knuckled down, worked hard and was almost ever present for the Potteries club, turning the Stoke move permanent in 2007. He'd see out his career at Stoke, retiring in 2012, spending a few more years in the Premier League after helping his club to relegation in 2008. He was a solid midfielder who could dictate play and drop deep for his club. He was slightly more advanced for his nation and he'll be fondly remembered for the 2002 Senegal team and for his time in the Premier League and amongst Liverpool fans probably for a winning goal against Leeds United. All in all, he spent 10 seasons in England despite never truly scaling potential heights that he had promised at that World Cup. After this short break, we'll be going to Italy, because the table never lies. Previously on Serie A, Inter Milan had thrown away the league title on the final day. They dropped from first to third, not only surrendering the league title, but automatic Champions League qualification. They'd been near peerless in what was a hectic summer in the transfer window. Ronaldo left, not only him but Dario Simic and Clarence Seedorf joined AC Milan. Ronaldo, of course, going to Real Madrid. Fabio Cannavaro began his short stint at the San Siro of Inter Milan whilst Crespo, Hernan Crespo, replaced R9 up front. Umit Davala of Turkey 2002 World Cup fame would cross the Milanese divide, but he would never play for the club. Regardless, enter February and with 14 games to go in Serie A, Inter led Milan and Juventus. They'd had a wobble in November, which saw them as low as 4th place, just slightly in the Champions League places. They'd lose just one match since the Milan derby defeat in November and led, but they'd go top just for that weekend thanks to Perugia. Perugia, who had thumped Inter Milan 4-1 the previous month, claimed another Milanese scalp. They'd win 1-0 against AC Milan, which had Inter top for a week, before the Flying Donkeys, that great Kievo team beat Inter Milan the following week. The Flying Donkeys of Kievo, who had run Milan so close to the top four the previous season, and they would get the exact same points return as they had done in 2001-2, 55, but this time it was 7th place and not 5th. Not one point off Champions League football. They, were the, they would be the only team in the top 10 in the Serie A that season not to play in Europe passing on Intertoto Cup football 
and not qualifying for the UEFA Cup by virtue of AC Milan winning the Coppa Italia and Roma being the runners-up Roma, who finished a point and a place behind them. Now for Inter Milan, even Christian Vieri, who top-scored for them with 24 and was the league's top goalscorer, couldn't help Inter Milan win the league. The Scudetto was Juventus's. Inter Milan's title bid collapsed thanks to a 3-0 loss at Juve and further defeats in another Milan derby and in and at Udinese. Four draws from the last five somehow kept them second and it was primarily because AC Milan, in a similar hunt with Inter Milan for a Champions League, collapsed their title bid quite quickly too. After this weekend, Milan would win just four matches on the field, the fifth being a 3-0 walkover against Torino for their crowd trouble. Torino would finish bottom with four wins to their name, likewise Como, who AC Milan beat in May to relegate them. Piancenza would join them in being relegated, but the fourth and final relegation spot would go beyond the regular 34-game season. Working on a head-to-head record as they do in Italy, four teams would become entangled on 38 points in 15th place. Modena needed a point to ensure safety on the final day as they had a better head-to-head out of the four teams. They sauntered into a 2-0 lead against Roberto Baggio's Brescia, but clung on to a 2-2 to uh, claim safety there. A loss, of course, would have them relegated. Empoli was safe, as despite having a level head-to-head record with Atalanta, it was 0-0 and 2-2, and those two away goals counted for their safety, even before the final day was wrapped up. Regina had effectively lost 4-3 on aggregate to Empoli on on head-to-head, and despite Regina's 2-0 win at Bologna, they wouldn't finish their season on the final day. As counterintuitive as that sounds. That is because Atalanta, also on 35 points with Regina, stunned Roma 2-1 in the Olimpico. Roma had nothing to play for. They were going to finish 8th regardless. So with Medina and Empoli safe because of a better head-to-head over Regina and Atalanta, the eyes went to pass matches between the, the latter two sides. November 24, 2002 and April 13, 2003, two seemingly inconsequential 1-1 draws at the time, became suddenly consequential. They'd play off and tied 0-0 after the first leg after two 1-1 draws in regulation league football. And then in the second leg, it was 1-1 again until the 85th minute when Emiliano Bonazzolo scored a winner for Regina in Bergamo, which sealed Atalanta's fate. They were relegated, defeated 2-1 on aggregate and their relegation sealed via the rare playoff. But let's go back to the top of the table, or rather, back to Italy's elite. The UEFA Cup had long been forgotten by Italian clubs. Parma's win in 1999, the last Italian team to win that competition. But the Champions League had been invaded by Italians, and well-performing Italians at that. We bid goodbye to Roma in the Champions League at the last 16 group stages. They'd underperformed both domestically and on the continent, and were a shell of their Scudetto-winning side of 2001 but the other three in Juventus, Milan and Inter stole the show. AC Milan took apart Bayern home and away in the first group stages, whipped Deportivo 4-0 in Spain, beat Real Madrid and won in Dortmund to claim their quarter-final place. Inter Milan topped a group with Ajax and Lyon, beat Bayer Leverkusen last season's finalists home and away and won 4-1 at Newcastle to, to claim their quarter-final place in the Champions League. Meanwhile, Juventus similarly beat Newcastle and thanks to a 4-0 win against Basel, and a late, late, late winner at home to Deportivo, won out on head-to-head, claiming second place in behind Manchester United to claim their quarter-final place. Pavel Nedved, though, was in full swing by the time the knockout stages come around. 
He'd score in the second leg against Barcelona, a game that went to extra time and was won by Juventus in the Camp Nou and was instrumental in the second leg against Real Madrid too, scoring the winner in a 4-3 aggregate win. However, he would miss the final through suspension at Old Trafford as Juventus beat the reigning champions. Meanwhile, Inter Milan scraped through Valencia and Milan needed a crucial 90th minute winner against Ajax to stop an away goals defeat and in turn won 3-2 on aggregate. An all-Milan showdown was stalemated in the first leg, obviously at San Siro, drawing 0-0 and the second leg of the most bizarre form of away goals saw AC Milan through. 1-1 was the score, despite an Obafemi Martins late equaliser. The third draw in a row was enough for Milan in the tournament and Ancelotti in Manchester. He'd won his first Champions League in a penalty shootout in one of the worst Champions League finals you're ever likely to see. And in Juve, they are third now and they are also third 18 years ago today and they have the distinction of being the only team to be in exactly the same position as they were 18 years prior in Serie A. After this short break, we'll round things off with a 2000s trivial teaser where we had, this week, a few correct answers. So last week, we had a 2000s trivial teaser and our man was a centre-back. He was a centre-back that, for the love of this podcast, Pop Father Mags and Mark Byrne all guessed correctly. It was, of course, Klaus Lundervam. Klaus Lundervam was managed by Graham Souness and Harry Redknapp, both at Southampton. He'd played alongside John Arnarisa with Norway's national team. He'd also played alongside Dave Bessant, Mark Hughes, Dan Petrescu and Peter Crouch, obviously all at Southampton. What a player. He was definitely one of my, what you'd call differentials in today's FPL vernacular back in the day in like 2002, three when Southampton were very, very good, just as they are now. Anyway, we're staying in the back line, as we have done for the past three weeks, I believe, but we're going back to full-back. Our player this week has been managed by Roy Hodgson and Claudio Ranieri. He's played alongside Wayne Rooney. He's also played alongside Frank Lampard, David Beckham, as well as Riyad Mahrez and Fernando Torres. Two big differences in time, two big differences in where those types of players have played. I asked a couple of my friends, they couldn't get it. But if you think you can get it, let me know in the comments section. Tweet us at whatif underscore YouTube, where we'll be all this week with usual ramblings about football, inane ramblings. We'll reveal the answer on episode 29, also on episode 29. The table never lies, goes to France and Ligue 1 for the 2002-03 season where a dynasty was continuing there. On this day, we'll be looking at Wickham as they drew two all next week in the 2000-2001 FA Cup when that famous run when they got to the semi-finals. We'll also be discussing the best ever Champions League knockout matches. Elsewhere on the channel, we'll be taking a look back at the Premier League season of 2001-2002. We'll be looking at the Netherlands, Skulls, Bobby Robson, France, Fulham, Champions League finalist Diego Maradona and one of the best games in terms of its commentary David Beckham Soccer, we've got a fantastic review of that on the channel. Keep it on What If underscore YouTube, gives a like, gives a subscribe as they all tend to say. And yet, yeah, we'll see you next week. Enjoy the rest of the week's videos. See ya.
Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.